Good evening. That was way better. Good job. Thanks for coming on the trailing end. It's good to see everybody. It is such a nice evening outside. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to read Psalm 133, and then we are back in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is fun. We took a break for the summer to talk about the hope that we have in Christ and that actionable hope that we have here and, and on earth as it is in heaven. And so now we're going to go back into our study into one of our confessional documents, the Westminster Confessional Faith. So I'm excited about that as well. So let me pray, and then I'll read, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for this space and these people and this food and this time to come together to worship you. And so we ask you that you bless us, Lord, tonight. Fill our hearts full of joy and allow us to do everything that we do for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 133. It's the word of the Lord. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. This is my favorite time of the year. I was saying before most all you are outside, we need to find a place where the weather is like this year-round. And then we'll do church there as well. That sounds great. Is it fall yet? Is it officially fall? Not officially. No. Not officially. Okay, well, happy almost. My birthday, which is when Phyllis's birthday party will be. Ah, excellent. Excellent. Next Saturday. Next Saturday. Well, I'm excited, even though it's not almost fall, for our jump back into almost fall study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you remember from before the summer when we were taking a look at this, we're studying this because it is one of the foundational confessional documents that our church adheres to. And it's not scripture, right? It's not canon, but it, it's tied to scripture. It's an explanation of what we believe. And it's a uniting document. It allows us to connect with other bodies of Christ that believe in the same things that we believe in. And so that's why and we've talked about this before, why creeds and confessions are so important for the Catholic, that's a small c, the universal church. They, they unite us universally on our common faith and our common foundation. And they end up binding us to the truth and authority of Scripture. And they also connect us to the historic church, this common footing, common theology. And so I think tonight's actually going to be a lot of fun because we're going to look at the foundation of our faith, of how all of us come to Christ. And as I think most of you know, there's two kind of main schools on this. School one is you pick Jesus. You raise your hand, you pray to prayer, and you're in Team Jesus, and that's that. But that's not what Scripture says. Uh, that would be the Arminian view of how we come to faith. What we're going to see today is that it's God's eternal decree that determines who is a member of the church and who is not. And that determination was made before the beginning of time, what we call the elect. And a theological term you might have heard before is predestination. And if you didn't grow up in the Reformed tradition, you may have been told that this doctrine of predestination is cold and it's unloving and doesn't fit the pattern of a loving God. And I think after we're done today and we look through a bunch of Bible verses, you're going to see it's actually the opposite. It is because God is who he is and he's sovereign and he's loving and he's sovereign over all things that only he could choose who is in and who is out, right? Why would he ever leave that up to fallen men? To make that decision for themselves. That wouldn't make any sense. So I wrote in my notes, buckle up, this is going to be fun. Chapter 3, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, 
God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So this actually makes sense if you think about the character and the nature of God. And if you remember way back before the summer, we looked at the character and nature of God in the first two chapters of the confession. If God is God, and if he is outside of space and time, and if he is the creator of everything, then obviously he ordains whatever comes to pass. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. God exists outside of space and time. He's the author of creation. He's the one that brings order to chaos. Just logical common sense would tell you that God then ordains everything that comes to pass. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Forever and all generations. It's not like, well, just for these people over here and nobody else over there. Right? God is all good. And he's also incapable of evil, which is what this says as well. And we see that in Psalm 5.4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell within you. God cannot be the author of evil because God is all good. 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. James 1.13-14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're going to come back to some more of that when we get to chapter 5 of the confession as well. So the point here is God is not the author of sin. That falls outside of the characteristic of who our good God is. Jesus 19.11, Jesus answered, sorry, John 19.11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has... has the greater sin. Nobody has authority over Christ. Nobody has authority over God. That's an important foundation of our faith. It's funny because John and Jesus will start with J. Looking through my notes, I just read the wrong one. That's great. But the other part at the end there is that our liberty and our freedom is established through whom and by whom? It's God. So the very nature that we have liberty and we have freedom only comes from God. It never comes from man. It never comes from anywhere else but the true freedom and the true liberty that we have in Jesus. If you remember, I think it was around the 4th of July, we talked about the true liberty and the true freedom we have in Christ. So Jesus is the only one that can provide freedom and liberty. Nobody has authority above Jesus, above God. And he ordains all things things that come to pass, but he is not the author of evil. Paragraph 2. Although God knows whatsoever may, may or can come to pass... Upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything, because he foresaw it as future, as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. This can be a little bit mind-twisting. I'm going to read this one again. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything, because he foresaw it as future, as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. God is God. He ordains everything that has comes to pass. He knows everything. He knows every outcome. He knows every single possibility. He knows what you're going to do, but he doesn't move you like a puppet. But he has to know everything because he's God. But we know that you have choice. My friend Tim especially calls this the creative will. 
the manner in which we express ourselves as image bearers of God, creating and taking dominion here. But this isn't the game. I've, I've, I've likened this before. Those of you who are, have some gray hairs will remember. I mean, I guess the kids do too. They have a new version of it. But it's not SimCity, right? It's not like God's like, okay, let's <laughs> see what they go do. Ah, I'm sure making a mess of it this week. Tornado, right? There's nothing that exists outside of God's purview. You picked the color truck that you have. He didn't force you to pick the color truck, but he knew you were going to pick that color truck. So you can get your brains wrapped around that a little bit. But it's important because God is in control of all things. There's nothing that is outside of God's purview because he is God. Now, your sinful heart may not like this. That's usually where the problem actually comes from. The problem is never God's problem. It's always our problem with our hearts approaching God. Your sinful heart may not like it because they... It may not like it for the same reason that you may not like that he ordains everything, that he uh, chooses who he elects and who he doesn't. But it goes back to, well, first of all, the promises of God. But if everything is under God's control, right, everything serves God's glory, so why would it be any other way? If everything in this world is to serve and glorify God, why would it be any other way? Right? It's not religious SimCity. Look at Romans 9, 11 through 18. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It's an important one, especially for the type A folks in the room. But it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God. And it's true. And he used it on purpose, right, to to demonstrate the covenant, part of this covenantal relationship that we are with. He has mercy on whom he has mercy on. He hardens whose hearts, whom he hardens. He is God. Everything in this world serves his glory. That's going to matter tomorrow, especially when we think and we look at Jesus walking on water and we talk about faith. It's going to tie back to that. But when you really understand that everything here is to serve his glory, then you get to taste joy. Because it's not about you anymore. It's about him. Nehemiah 8.10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we're supposed to be really joyful people. If you see really miserable Christians, they're doing it wrong. Now, this is a sticking point for some people, what we're about to read here. Paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Some people will call this double predestination. I don't see any way, if you read the Bible, that it's not clear that God picks, if God picks who's elect, He's also picked who is not elect. And that can be a sticking point because it feels callous. But if you think about the justice of God, it has to be that way. It has to be that way. 
and, and a lot of large, we were just talking about kind of the modern evangelical movement for a class that Sophia's taking on the five solas, and it's kind of hard because we know churches, we know people in churches who do not believe in this. They believe it's just your own choice. Just raise your hand, and if you picked today, that's all that is required of you. But the challenge with that is it never leads to a life of all of Christ for all of life immediately there. I think a lot of times God works through We We started off at churches like that and works you through to a, pla- a path where you understand the importance that your orthopraxy has to match your faith, right? You, you have to live of all of Christ for all of life. But if somebody's just told you, like, all you got to do is do this thing, that's it, you're done, you're good, that's the only impact it has. How, how is it supposed to sanctify, change you? You're sinful. You, you're just going to pick all of a sudden to follow the path of righteousness when the path of sin is way more fun? I mean, it's not. That's the, that's the paradox. It's really actually not. But it, it, is in the, it is in the moment. That's why people do it. If sin didn't feel good, you wouldn't go do it. But it's never lasting, right? It's always destructive. But the Bible's clear. Listen to what the Bible says. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or Romans 9, 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And then you can go back to the Old Testament in Proverbs 16, 4. You guys know I love Proverbs. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The Lord has made everything for his purpose. Something I think I said this at church last week that I've been noticing. This, I'm taking this backgrounds class in the Old Testament, PhD class, and it's a lot of geographical and archaeological information of the ancient Near East. Bless you. It's really fascinating. I don't even remember where I was going with that. Holden sneezed and I derailed. I derailed. Yeah, exactly. Just it's the, the the thought has has oh chaos and order. That's what it was. Chaos and order. And if you look at the myths, I think I've said this the last couple of weeks. But if you look at the myths of the pagan world, even now, it always involves chaos, fighting through chaos, building through chaos, growth. It, it's it's never order. But God's world is always orderly. Always. God is the only thing that brings order to the world. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Not like he made 98% of things and 2% of it doesn't. There is no secular religious divide in the world. Everything is under God's authority. Everything is under God's authority, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Paragraph 4 in the Confession. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot either be increased or diminished. It can't be increased or diminished. God has preordained who are his and who are not. And if we think about that, that makes sense with everything else we've read about God. If, if everything else about God is unchangeable, why would this thing be changeable? That wouldn't fit the character of God. One of the things that we can talk about is the simplicity of God, that God's character doesn't change. We, in our sinful state, sometimes we do this, right? And then when we get sanctified, hopefully we don't do any more of this and kind of do one of these things. But God's not like us. So God's character cannot change, which means when God has made his decision, you can't talk him out of it. Let's make a deal, God. I have some things I'd like to offer you. 
5, 6, and 7, kind of back to back, because they all, these are paragraphs from chapter 3. 5 first. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love alone, without any foresight or faith or good works or preservation in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto whereby they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ and are effectively, effectively called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit working in due season. Christ works in us and we respond to Jesus, are justified, adopted, and sanctified. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectively called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Seven, the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of a sovereign power of his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praising of his glorious justice. It's all under God's control. See, God's elector for himself. They serve his purposes and they were determined before the foundation of the world. This is important one, when we think covenantally and we think about families and why we baptize babies, baptism isn't what saves. When we baptize babies and we commit to raising them as part of the covenant, we raise small children up as members, we treat them as other Christians. We're not looking and waiting like, hey, raise your hand, did you do think? Say your testimony. But I think it's even bigger. When you understand that God picks who God picks, it helps us answer really difficult questions like what happens tragically to those babies that are murdered in the abortion mills? Or what happens to the baby that dies of SIDS? Or what happens to the child that lives in a country that hasn't heard the message of the gospel yet? We're going to see here in a little bit what this does is this removes the responsibility for us owning other people's salvation. And it can give us, it can give us hope and faith and trust in a good God, right? We believe in a good God. We believe in His good purposes. And so we trust, we trust that especially when, when children die or are murdered, that this serves God's purposes. We have to, otherwise it's a hopeless world. For God to be good, it couldn't be any other way. Right? We have to have trust in that. Romans 8.30 and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And then John 10, 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. We know the voice of the shepherd. We respond to him. See, we don't pick Jesus. We're dead in our sin. God picks us through the preaching of the word, through discipleship, through the sharing of the gospel, the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and Jesus draws them to himself. This is not actually a cold doctrine. It's a life-giving doctrine. And it's a beautiful reality and it should be comforting to us because that the responsibility of, the sal of our salvation is God's, not our own. You don't own other people's salvation. You don't. 
you are not responsible for other people's salvation. Like, how could you be responsible for somebody else's salvation? That's absolutely absurd. So that should be a relief. But that doesn't remove responsibility from you. You have the responsibility of a great commission, right? Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You have a job. Like you have a job. You've been told to go do this job. Just because you're not responsible for the end result doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of doing the job. What it does is take the pressure off of the job. You don't have to like have your I've saved numbers up on the board. We went to a church like that that literally was like, close your eyes, raise your hand. We raised our hand every week because we're like, we're reborn all the time in Jesus. Thank God. <laughs> right? I mean, right? Like, raise your hand if you're reborn in Jesus. Right here. <laughs> Dying to myself every day. Sometimes a lot more than once. Right? So the whiteboard on the wall, check, 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 check. 12, 12 sold souls saved for Jesus. And if we get to a 20th, we get a, you know, a free pizza party. I don't even know like, what the deal is, right? We're not responsible for the results, but we are responsible for doing the job faithfully. And, and you will experience persecution doing the job faithfully. So this takes the pressure off of when people don't respond to you positively when, when you're sharing the gospel, right? This isn't about earning any conversion merit badges to your uh, patches of piety sash. So this should give you relief and should actually give you encouragement to work even harder at sharing the gospel and discipling the nations and, and sharing the good news because we got a whole world to share it with, right? And, and this is the reason you can stand firm and you can live for all of Christ for all of life because God actually has the rest. He's going to take care of the rest of it. You have a responsibility to, to act in a manner that's befitting of the, the righteousness bestowed upon you and then to go share that and carry that out to the world. And lastly, not should this just give you relief, but this should bring you peace. Lifelong peace. Eight. The doctrine of this high mystery. Isn't that the truth? We are. We're human beings get real prideful, like demanding God to know the reasons why of his economy. We want to know, Lord. Tell us. He's like, I'm God. No. <laughs> we should be grateful he's revealed. You can't handle yeah, You can't handle the truth. We should be grateful that he's revealed himself to us at all. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending to the will of God, revealed in his word, and yielding obedience thereunto, may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. You see, predestination is this mystery, all of this. The way God interacts is a mystery. He, through His incredible grace, He's revealed some of that mystery to us. But, of course, it's a mystery. He's God. He doesn't have to explain to us. Parents don't explain to their children everything that they do. Right? We are not entitled to know His ways unless God chooses to share them with us. Romans 9.20 But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Right? This is, this, is, this is such an important piece of an apologetic and a discussion in a world right now that's mutilating children and telling them that they can be something that they can't be instead of encouraging them to love who God made them to be. And, and grown-ups, too, that are going through this. 
Who <laughs> yells back at God? Arrogant people. But see, here's the thing. This is all God's will. And when we yield in obedience, when we acknowledge that the Lord is the Lord, that Christ is Lord, it gives us peace because what that actually means is that we can't fall out of favor with God. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It doesn't say you'll never have like a tough day, you won't have a dark season, or a really rough year, but you will never fall. You will never, you will never fall from God's favor. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers love, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. If Jesus has worked in your heart, you can't be the same person you were before he worked in your heart. It's impossible. The sanctification process is different for every person, but you, you actually can't be the same person. You're dead to the old. You're, you're alive to the new. And, and the encouragement and the hope is as you're going through the growth process of sanctification and you're experiencing trials and tests, you can't fall out of God's favor. I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler for tomorrow. God doesn't lose faith in you. <laughs> it's not God that's the problem, right? It's the sinful hard heart that loses faith in God. You don't fall out of the elect if you're predestined to be part of God's people. We call this the perseverance of the saints. It's not a game like, oh, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. It reminds me of the airplane movie when he's like pulling the plug. Lights on, lights off, lights on, lights off. It's not, it's not like that. Even if you have an experience, tragedy and difficulty and, and dark nights of the soul. And so what this should do to us is because we understand our eternal salvation, the fact that we can't fall out of it with God, it, it should turn us into people who constantly revere him and worship him and praise him and admire him in humility, especially when we fall, right? Knowing that, that God still forgives you, that, that part of God's forgiveness is sins past, sins present, sins future. And that should actually drive you into deeper humility because then you realize you're like, wow, you're still here. Right? How many times have we turned our backs on things we shouldn't turn our backs on and God does not turn his back on his people? It's incredible. And that, that also gives us the courage to stand firm in clown world, right? Is if God isn't going to turn his back on us, then we should surely not turn our back on him. And we should approach it with humility. We should do it diligently. And we should do this with expediency, because it's important. That's why we stand united here with our brothers and sisters together. That's why we talk so much about being a family. Again, Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those, those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, you're, you're called, and then you are justified. You are, you, are made, you are made good before God forever. Justified. And then because of that, glorification, which leads to your sanctification, and then you get to live out the glory of God in your actual life by building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And you should never lose hope. Luke 10, 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that you're God's. Man can do nothing to you. Man can make your life painful can even physically take your life. 
but he can't take the gift that God has given you. Can't take it at all. That, that should give you joy and peace and confidence and humility. And would you really want a God that was any other way? Would you really want like a choose-your-own-adventure God? The Bible doesn't say that at all. Yeah, it's a terrible thing. If you ever tried to read a choose-your-own-adventure book from start to finish without following the adventure, that's chaos. See, you need, you need God to get out of choose-your-own-adventure and just give you the story in a nice linear, linear timeline. So we should be people who rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And that should motivate us to act like kingdom-minded people right here and right now. All of Christ, for all of life, and, and, and going out and living our faith and discipling the nations and building these economies and these households and doing it with joy on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's go sing and then let's feast with joy.